mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode 34 of Putting in Work. I'm John Peck. And before we get into this week's guest, I want to thank some people who've left some kind reviews in iTunes. I really appreciate the support there. Every review helps bump it up in the iTunes algorithm, apparently. And I think I'm going to start reading a review each week. I've probably got enough of them to do so. And of course, they'll keep coming in, hopefully. Just recently, in the last few weeks, I want to shout out Lefty Logan, my pal Logan Wilkinson, and iDruby, which I believe is Drew Agnew over in South Australia. Thank you for those five-star reviews. Drew Agnew gets the review of the week. He says, I listen to the show every week, and it's great listening to the different guests. Very inspirational to put in some work. Thanks, Drew. This week's guest, Jock Sarong, is a published author down in Port Ferry. His debut novel, Quota, won the 2015 Ned Kelly Award for Best First Crime Novel. And he's just released his third book, which is called On the Java Ridge, with text publishing. It took eight years for that first book to come out, so Jock's got quite a lot to say about the process that goes into working with a publisher and what it means to be a successful author in 2017 and how that might not necessarily line up with what our expectation would be. Jock is a former lawyer, but he's also a laid-back surfer type, so he's quite a unique character, and it was great to sit down with him. It was actually just before he and I, as long with our mutual friend Matt Neal, another Southwest author and former guest of this show, were invited to attend a writer's panel to talk about our respective books and the work that went into those, so that was a heap of fun, and I might release some of that panel as a mini episode of this show if i can clean up the audio enough so stay tuned for that without further ado here is jock sarong enjoy the show this is where you write is it yep this is um this is my little cave i spend most of my life these days (laughs) and so you before uh Going into writing, you were a lawyer, is that right? Or? Yeah, I was a lawyer for 17 years. Um, so I started out in Melbourne doing commercial work that was really, really boring. And then I um, moved down to Port Ferry for a year or two. Mm-hmm. I went to the Western Desert and worked with um, Aboriginal people on native title. Okay. Then I became a barrister for about six years. Um, and I wound up back down here. And how did the writing start? Started with, um, I wrote a lot as a kid at school and I was really um, quite obsessed with writing and then I somehow took this detour off into law as a young adult. Once we moved down here, I started writing non-fiction stuff for surfing magazines uh, and I've now been doing that for about 10 years. And I think that the non-fiction sort of led gradually to trying my hand at a bit of fiction. Sure. So that was probably about, I reckon, 2009, I'd started tinkering with that idea. The surfing stuff was that product reviews and interviews and that kind of like journalism, basically. Yeah, essentially, only without the ethics and the professionalism. (laughs) (laughs) I yeah, I would I'd go and interview surfers, I'd cover surf contests, um, yeah, all that sort of general stuff, cultural stuff, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I had this thing about surfing stories that I wanted to push them as far as you could push them within the bounds of a surf magazine. So I did stories on mental health, indigenous surfing, stuff on coral biology, okay. you know, to see how far you could go from the kind of standard, here's a guy in a barrel story, yeah. <laughs> which gets a bit dull after a while. Yeah. And you mentioned kind of casually just starting creative writing after doing that, but what was the thought process for you? Was it something you'd always wanted to do? Was it something that you weren't sure whether you could do it, but you just wanted to give it a crack? Or Yeah, I think um, it took a lot of writing articles before I started to build up the confidence to go back to you know that original dream of, of writing novels. 
that I had as a kid. And the starting point really was there was a little gathering of writers here in Port Ferry run by a guy called Brian Edwards. And um, you'd go along on a Saturday afternoon or a Friday night or whatever it was and with something that you'd written and you had to read it to a group and the group would give you feedback about it. And that was really daunting at first. And again, it's, it's a slow process of building up a bit of confidence. And then when I looked at the stuff I was writing for those groups over about, I don't know, a year, I could see that they were sort of little fragments of stuff, but that they could link together into a longer story. And that was a pretty exciting point, realising that if I joined all those things up, that there was the potential to make a novel. Okay. What was the first genre that you decided to give a crack at? Yeah, well, it was crime, um, and probably because I had practised a lot of my law in crime. Mm. And if you think about that basic conceit that drives fiction, you need humans in trauma, you need humans in conflict to have a drama. Um, and, and the nearest reference point I had for conflict and drama was crime. I, you know, it's, it was an area I understood. Um, so I guess that first novel, Quota, I didn't approach that as a conventional detective thing, as a whodunit. It was more... I wanted to look at the, the repercussions in a small town of a murder. You know, what happens after the murder and mm. how do people react and how does it change their lives? What was it like working on that, having no experience in writing a, a book? I'm sure that you had to do a bit of research. Did you make a lot of mistakes that you had to later correct? Or yeah, what was it like? Was, yeah. <laughs> I, um, the first thing I noticed was that I really, really enjoyed just being buried in it. You know, I really, at that stage, I was writing late at night and still working in a law firm. So it was this beautiful kind of relaxation and it was another world that I could get lost in. So that, that was a great pleasure. It's not actually hard work writing a lot of words. It's a great pleasure. But yeah, I was making a mess. And once I thought I'd finished it, <laughs> once I had a manuscript, I started sending it out to publishers and the people who did come back to me, and a lot of them just don't have an answer, or they say no straight out, but the people who did come back to me, the, the, the comment was that, you know, there was something there, but that the structuring was awful. So there was a lot of very, very extensive rewriting before it got to a, someone offering me a contract. Excellent. So what do you think was there that caught their attention? Because from my experience writing a book and trying to get attention from publishers, you just feel like you're throwing... Yeah. Run against the wall sometimes. Yeah, and you also wonder, you know, did this person read it? Did they read yeah. it thoroughly? Did they understand my good bits? Yeah, it's <laughs> like, did they even look at it? Because yeah. if you yeah. don't hear back, is it because it's not good or just they have a stack that's three feet high on their desk and they haven't got to it? Yeah, there's a great little um, yarn in Richard Flanagan's new book where he talks about sending his manuscript to a, a prize and he ties it up with string and he uses this really unusual fisherman's knot on the string. Yeah. And when it gets sent back to him after the prize has gone to someone else, he discovers it's still got the same knot in the string. <laughs> um, so sometimes it feels that way, but the volumes at the other end are enormous. You know, it's very hard for publishers to pick talent out of a pile. Um, so I guess you sort of feel a bit angry at times, but... Um, you've got to remain as open to learning as you can. You know, you've got to take people's criticisms on board and think about how that might improve your writing and, and not get defensive about what you've written. Sure. What was it you think that they identified as something that stood out when they were um, reading? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't really know other than to say I think 
it was a very deeply coastal book, and I think that kind of caught a zeitgeist of some sort. There was a, I had the advantage of knowing what courtrooms feel like and sound like, and um, so that was perhaps a bit of a different angle, that I could write courtroom dialogue fairly naturally. Okay. Um, and other than that, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm just grateful that it got noticed at all. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like there's an, been an element of luck, or do you feel... Yes. Yeah. How I do. would you describe that? Because some people give varying degrees of credit to luck and to circumstances, because yeah. obviously everyone's worked hard on whatever they've created, whether it's a book or an album or whatever, but there's also that degree to which someone has to, the right person has to pick it up and be in the right mood to actually yeah. respond. Absolutely right. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that being among writers, they're very supportive of each other. It's a really strong, supportive community of people. And I think the underlying reason for that is that all of us know that we're working our guts out and, and that we all have you know, a range of talent that is actually not that wide. We're all reasonably talented at what we do, but there is there is a lot of luck that comes into it. And so you can't afford to be cruising around thinking you're the guy who made it because that may have simply been something fortuitous that happened that you never even saw in someone else's office. Okay. Um, so it's a good reason to look out for each other, I think. Sure. And how long did it take for everything to get rolling once the right publisher ticked the box and said they wanted to work with you? Yeah. Um, like, was there a long period of querying? or Yeah, there was a long period of pitching to publishers and agents. Then when the book was picked up, it was picked up expressly on the basis that it needed rewrites. Mm-hmm. So there was about another 18 months from the day I signed the contract to the day oh. it came out. And that was a pretty tough 18 months. During that time, I rewrote Quota twice and I wrote a film. So that was once I'd done that and I knew the book was in good shape and I had this screenplay done, that was the point at which I thought, you know, I can let law go now, I can actually step off. Sure. So was there a period before the book came out that you weren't working just focusing on the book? Yes, there was. The the last six months or so prior to publication, I I was only on the book and and the screenplay. So did that take a fair bit of faith in yourself and in the process that things wouldn't fall through and that there would be uh, something coming at the other end of it? Yeah, it did. And and I also kind of deliberately put myself in a state of terror by um, (laughs) letting go of my practicing certificate. So effectively, I... Let you know, I, I dropped the safety net. Um, Force yourself to yeah, put everything into I, it. Yeah. I wanted to feel like everything depended on it, and and I'm not saying that's the, the motivator that works for everybody. Um, it was a pretty stressful time, but it lit a bit of a fuse under me for sure. Oh. <laughs> Looks like it worked out all right. It's getting there. How do you go from first book, which I understand was met with fairly warm response, to following that? You do hear a lot about that kind of sophomore album idea that, that second books are hard. That both was and wasn't my experience. It wasn't in the sense that I immediately knew what I wanted to write another novel about and I had a strong sense of the characters and it has an unusual structure and I knew how I wanted that structure to work. But I was kind of ready to go instantaneously with Backyard Cricket. Mm. The hard part, I suppose, is that as you become better at anything, and, and this applies across all sorts of human endeavours. As you become better at something, um, you challenge yourself more. So it doesn't get easier, it probably gets harder. Mm. You know, I had higher standards for myself. I knew where I'd gone wrong with the first book and I wanted to make sure that it was a, a better book. Um, yeah, and it's a really different book. It, it's, um, yeah, it's very different. 
Okay. And what was it like to have this book out and actually be recognised with an award and with you know a, a, a warm, a, like I said, a warm response, but people actually wanting to buy it and pay you to do another yeah. one? <laughs> yeah, it, it's an amazing feeling, um, and it's amazing to me that you go along to talk about the book and that people come and want to listen. I, I still <laughs> feel absurdly grateful for that. Um, yeah, once. It really is fuel. Once you get that feeling that people are buying the book and um, your mates send you photographs from where they've been on holidays mm. and places you can't afford to go, but they're reading your book. Yeah. Um, and you think, that's so cool. And and it, it pushes you onward, I think. Yeah, it's a powerful motivator to know that even if only in a modest way, it's starting to work. Mm. And what's it been like actually working with a publisher? Because, you know, I've self-published a book. I haven't got any support in that area. And our friend Matt, who... Where with today has has an overseas publisher, so there's not you know someone yeah. putting him on you know bus stops and billboards. So to have actually someone behind you has that been a a great help in ways that you can describe. And yeah. B has there been not problems, but has there been tensions between what you expect from them and what they expect from you? It's certainly been a great support. It, the support of having an editor. If you're in a relationship with an editor who you trust, it's a wonderful thing because um, you can let go of a bit of that artistic defensiveness. And when somebody who has real credibility says to you, I need to run a red pen through that whole chapter, um, it hurts like hell, but you, you have this underlying feeling that they know what they're talking about. So having the support of a great editor, to me, was just a huge blessing. And even things like there being a publicist who can organise a talk for you or who can book a flight or um, who can tell you about how the media is going to work around the book, you know, that stuff, I have no idea about those areas. And, and to have somebody helping with that is fantastic. Um, and, and more broadly, the publisher's whole approach has been to let me do what I want to do. There's no pressure to write a particular kind of book. Mm, okay. um, there's a little bit of pressure to have it done by a deadline, but even that is reasonably flexible. And yeah, it's enormously encouraging that someone says, you know the books you want to write, go and write them and, and we'll be here supporting you when it's done. That's sort of exactly where you want it. You know? Sure. What would you say has been the hardest part of this experience for you so far, moving from law to writing and, and being a, a published author? Um, yeah, it's, I suppose money is a big difference. There's no way of sugarcoating that. Um, and, and you go from having a regular source of income to one that's quite sporadic. Mm. So. And you're one of the successful writers. (laughs) Apparently. Um, almost every writer you talk to has got other ways of bringing in income and they can be variously unreliable, humiliating, <laughs> um, highly amusing. So, yeah, that, that other side of things is pretty rocky. Other than that, I, you know, once you... It feels to me like I've found um, work in my life that I feel really motivated about and that I feel like I'm finally living a bit closer to what my talents are. And um, that's a good feeling and it pushes you onward and... A lot of the difficult stuff about our working lives, you know, maybe the answer to resolving it is to make sure that you're doing the thing you love doing. Because I, I remember Sunday nights just thinking, Christ, tomorrow's Monday. Um, you know, it's on again. And, and I quite look forward to Mondays now. 
Because you get the house to yourself. Got the house to myself. <laughs> got a whole lot of imaginary people I want to write down. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Make up stories for money. It's fantastic. <laughs> and if you hadn't, you know, worked really hard as a lawyer and I assume saved a whole lot of, a bit of money as a safety net, do you think it would have, you would have had the confidence in yourself to take the leap into something that doesn't produce as much money? Um, I wonder a lot about that. I, you know, sometimes I think, what if instead of going through university and going into a firm and living that life, what if I'd walked out of school at 18 and started trying to write mm. novels? And I don't think I would have had the strength of character um, or, frankly, the intellect to do it. Yeah. Um, so maybe, you know, on the one hand, it, it's a pity to have finally got to doing this work, and I think I was 42 at the time. But on the other hand, maybe my whole life wasn't ready to do it anyway until then. Interesting, um, yeah. Yeah, I think it would have been, a, and particularly to watch your friends qualify in trades or go through university or get into good jobs, to watch all that happening around you and to watch them buy cars and then buy homes or those sort of you know steps through life, um, had I done it the other way around and tried to write novels at a young age, um, it would have been pretty gruelling to watch that happen around you and, and not to be able to be a part of it. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said about having some experience before you write something. Because I tried to write a book when I was 21, I think, and it was compared yeah. to you know my ability now. Yep. Even just through having those years of writing has been a huge boost. But yep. actually having life experience and all those years of consuming different media and content and different stories that yep. give you more ideas, I think that in 10 years when I'm close to your age, who knows the things that I'll have picked up by then. So it's, it's a good lesson that it's never too late to start something. It might be right. And I think there's a reason that um, you hear so many stories of writers or filmmakers working as taxi drivers and bartenders and psychiatric nurses and mm. things like that. It's because it's this cumulative exposure to human beings mm. and the way they operate that really is um, a great source of inspiration. Mm. And it also means that when you, particularly if you're writing dialogue or if you're writing the really close stuff about your characters, it's a very, very subtle thing to have a radar for what's bullshit and, and what actually works. And it's not a matter of technique. No one can teach it to you in a, in a lecture. It really almost just comes down to a lot of long-term study of people, mm. knowing those bits that will resonate with a reader and, and the bits that are going to sound tinny. It's a good way to put it. <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it. So what would be your advice to people that want to maybe move from the career they're in to writing uh, fiction? Or maybe people have been trying to write fiction and struggling with getting published? What, what would be yeah. your advice in general? Um, I think the biggest thing would be that you get sold a lot of nonsense about writing being a solitary thing. And, of course, at some level it's solitary. At some stage I have to sit at this desk and just tap keys. But um, there's an enormous amount of support out there and that you've got to get good at finding it and using it. There is, I, I've never approached a fellow writer and been given the cold shoulder. People want to talk to you about your work. They want to talk about their own work. Um, they want to share the hardships. So there's that kind of informal network mm. that's really not that hard to tap into. It's amazing how accessible writers are, even the well-known ones. Um, and then at a more formal level, there's a lot of organisations like Writers Victoria and the Wheeler Centre um, who do really good work making communities around books. So I think um, that's one thing, is to 
recognise that, in fact, it's a very communal endeavour and there's lots of people trying to help each other. Mm. Um, and maybe the other thing is that you don't need to be as precipitous as I was. You don't need to burn everything behind you to start. <laughs> you can actually just inch yeah. your way into it and that's a perfectly reasonable way. To, it's probably a more sensible way to approach it. Yeah. Yeah, it is something that you can work on over time. That It's not something that has to be produced all at once. Yeah. So you don't have to drop everything to complete it. Yeah. And that's the other thing I reckon I'm only just starting to learn. I'm writing my fourth novel at the moment and I'm just starting to figure out that banging down the story is not the hard bit. You can do it. You can get a whole draft of a novel done in 15, 20 weeks what really matters to the quality of that work is the, the very, very slow sifting and reflecting and polishing and chipping. It's those little tiny things. Yeah. And you're right, there's this slow motion that happens over a long period of time and it's a very difficult thing to assess as to where you're up to and when it's going to be finished. You almost It's like someone has to rip it out of your hands at the end. Mm, yeah. But I think that um, chipping process of just tiny things is so important to doing good work. And and with the first novel, I hadn't chipped and polished, you know. I submitted the thing when it was kind of roughly ready, and, and I think, in retrospect, uh, I was premature. Okay. Specifically with working with agents or publishers, is there anything that people can do to catch their attention, or do you think it all just comes down to the quality of that manuscript? I think it does. I, I never... Um, entered unpublished manuscript competitions and I think in retrospect that would have been a good thing to do because the books particularly debuts that have had a rocket start have been the ones that have done well in unpublished manuscript competitions Mm. it tends to create bidding wars between publishers other than that yeah I, I think there must be some value in learning about how publishers operate and how agents operate because for instance when I started pitching my first novel all I did was look up the names I recognised on the internet, which, which of course will have been the large houses predominantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only now after a few years that I, I look across the publishing industry and I think there really are differences of personality between publishers, that some of them have a very um, independent vibe, some of them have a very um, Australian-centric vibe. Some of them are big and corporate and shiny, mm. and they look ace, but um, being lost in that machine mightn't be a good thing. Um, and then there are little tiny niche ones who are ferocious in pursuit of one genre or one type of author. And increasingly, those sort of yapping terriers are the ones that are um, propelling authors to considerable fame. You know, like um, A.S. Patrick, who won the Miles Franklin, was published by a very small house. And there's plenty of those examples around now. Mm-hmm. It's not like Penguin just sort of scoops the pool everywhere. Sure. So the last question for you, Jock. If you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? <laughs> I'd probably go surfing all day long. Yeah. <laughs> That's a slacker's answer, isn't it? Yeah. Professional surfer. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think um, anybody would pay me to surf. I think we'd be fairly confident of that. Well, in this hypothetical, you can't fail, so... I can't fail. Okay, yeah, then then it's probably that. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Yeah. Very good. Is there a creative idea that you'd love to tackle but have reservations about as well? Like, Um, I'd like to ask the question first with no context and see what they say and then throw that in there. Okay. Um, (laughs) The novel I'm writing at the moment, if it works... 
um, and that's a big if. I'd love it to be a trilogy. Okay. And I think that's like bands bringing in 46 guitarists and a choir and saying, we're making a concept double album. Mm. Um, it's pretty indulgent and uh, it's... To do a trilogy? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I'd love to do a trilogy and have people follow that trilogy and have that trilogy work, but um, that's a long-term vision. Okay. I mean, I've heard that uh, sequels and, and things are the best thing writers can do because if people buy the book, they won't go back and read the first. Or if they buy yeah. the first, they want to read the second. So there's a kind of a built-in audience. Do you think that's not... Necessarily yeah. always the case? Oh, not always the case. I think it does apply very strongly with young adult. Right. Um, most of the good young adult stuff is written in series. You know, it can mm. be a trilogy, it can be up to seven or eight books. Yeah. And that really works because it's been proven that teens who are good readers will follow a character through a series. Sure. Um, if adults. Even though, like, you think about, like, Matthew Riley and um, the Bourne books, there's a lot of series that seem to span over an arc. Like that. Yep. Is, yeah. it, is it only, do you think it's a certain genre that it works for? Well, I'll put a bizarre idea to you. I reckon that adults are less inclined to read series of books because they're more aware of their own encroaching mortality. <laughs> and what they think to themselves, if only subconsciously, what they yeah. think to themselves is, I've probably only got 200 books left in me before I cark it. Do I want to spend some of those 200 books on one author? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas kids don't have any concept of mortality, so they'll read a series until it gets to book 25. Okay. So I, I think that people identify with, like, the same way they look at a band. Well, this is how I think anyway. They look at an author and it's like, I like their work. I want to support them. I want to see what they do next. And if it's the yeah. same character, they will even feel the same about that character. But maybe it is a, a demographic, like you yeah. say. I hope you're right. <laughs> about to find out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in a few years, you can let me know. Yeah, we'll redo the podcast. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> chatting, Jock. It's been thanks, John. It's a great pleasure, mate. No worries. Thanks heaps for listening. You can catch Jock on Twitter at Jock Sarong. His books, Quota, The Rules of Backyard Cricket, and On the Java Ridge are all out now, so go check him out. As always, follow me on Twitter at Johnny himself. Until next week, keep putting in work.